a great pleasure to welcome all of you here at the LSE and the Forum for European Philosophy um, to a dialogue which is part of a series that we started uh, doing recently, the aim of which is to um, investigate concepts, notions that are important to many of us. So past um, dialogues have included um, discussions on the notion of happiness or forgiveness, uh, future installments will include um, discussions on friendship, on guilt, on creativity, on beauty, you know, all kinds of concepts that are near and dear to us. And today's topic uh, will be the topic of love. Right? Um, so what is this thing called love? Is it an emotion like other emotions? Is it unlike any other emotion, unconditional? Is it enduring? Um, how can we characterize it? And today to discuss this uh, with us here, um, uh, Simon May and David Bell, which is my great pleasure to introduce to you. Most of you um, will know them probably already. So David Bell is uh, president of the British Psychoanalytic Society uh, and a consultant psychiatrist for the NHS Foundation Trust. Um, and he has, throughout his career, had an interest in uh, the relations between psychoanalysis and other disciplines, such as literature, philosophy, culture, uh, or political issues. And um, Simon May is a visiting professor of philosophy at King's College who has just published a book on love and history and is also working on another book in <laughs> Very good. Thank you very much. And he's also working on another you'll, book you'll um, called Love and Phenomenology. Um, and my name, just um, before I forget to introduce myself, I'm Christina Musal and I'm a fellow here at the philosophy department and deputy director of the forum. Um, and I will, I think now, just leave the stage to our two um, discussants. Uh, the way we usually do these things is that um, the two speakers will <coughs> each perhaps present their view on the matter and then uh, have discussion among themselves. And then we'll have time for questions uh, and comments from you afterwards. So um, without further ado, I'll just hand over. I think Simon will yep. start, right? Thank you very much. Um, when David gives me his Swiss bank account number, the commissions will flow. Um, one of the uh, strange things about asking the question, what is love today, is that many people are uncomfortable even with the attempt to define it. A philosophy of love, so this view goes, is a contradiction in terms. For love is a matter of feeling, not thought. It can't be defined, it's spontaneous, it's individual, and it cannot be captured by the generalizations for philosophy of philosophy, or if it can, then it is denatured in the process so that we, as it were, destroy the very thing that we're seeking to understand. At the same time, talk about love is obviously everywhere. Our world is awash with explanations of how and why we love in terms of mating strategies and evolutionary fitness, or brain states and neurotransmitters, or stories about the various sorts of loving relationship that can exist, or patterns of attachment in childhood and so on. So why the inconsistency? Why is talk of love obviously everywhere, and yet at the same time it's a no-go zone? I suggest that the answer is that love has taken on many of the features of religious belief so that its fundamental tenets have become unquestionable for those who are within the belief system, which is most of us. In other words, it is fine, even essential, 
to ask how love can be made to work, why it doesn't work, what social or evolutionary purposes it might serve, whether it works best inside marriage or outside marriage or within friendship or within a romantic relationship, whether women are better at it than men or the other way around, and what sorts of therapies might best promote it. All these questions are obviously discussed ceaselessly, but the nature of love, what exactly it is and what we demand from it, is in a sense sacred territory. A powerful consensus exists that to be genuine, love must be unconditional in the sense that it is now neither aroused nor diminished by the other's value or qualities, and that it must be enduring, disinterested, and love the other for their own sake and in all their particularity, and so on. I'm sure you'll all be familiar with, with these ways of thinking about love. For example, Harry Frankfurt, one of the few philosophers these days who writes on love, a professor of philosophy at Princeton, claims deeply conventionally that love consists most basically in a disinterested concern for the well-being or flourishing of the person who is loved. It is not driven, he says, by any ulterior purpose, but seeks the good of the beloved for, it, for its or her own sake. Now we are, I think, still dominated by a background picture that hasn't changed in its essentials since late 19th century romanticism. Indeed, when it comes to love, the long 19th century, often said to extend to 1914 or 1917, to the Russian Revolution, actually extends well into the 21st. Love, and especially parental love, to which I will come return later, is the one untouchable area, the last taboo, stuck in an ever more rigid time warp. If what I'm saying is somehow right, then we are dealing with a fascinating paradox. The tremendous liberation of sex and marriage over the past hundred years has been accompanied by love's ossification rather than by its reinvention. Free love has not freed love in the sense of giving us fresh conceptions of it. On the contrary, the new liberties flowing above all from divorce, the pill, and the acceptance of gay sex, which are three of the most far-reaching and still unfinished revolutions of the 20th century, have been exploited as opportunities to pursue the same old traditional ideal. Now I'm going to park that issue for the time being and return to the question, is love definable? And the answer is that for most of the last 2,400 years until about the middle of the 19th century, almost nobody doubted, almost no thinker doubted that it is. Broadly, in the Western world, which is all I'm even vaguely competent to talk about, so I'm just not going to go beyond that today, there have been six ways of conceiving love, and they all came on the scene before Christ. The New Testament, contrary to what many think, does not develop a single new conception of the nature of love. Indeed, the Synoptic Gospels seldom report Jesus as speaking of love, and certainly far less often, for the most part, far less stridently than they report him speaking of pride or wealth, about which he is far more concerned. In any case, to come back to the five basic ways there have been of conceiving love, 
The first comes from Hebrew scripture, where we get the idea that to love is to make ourselves available to anyone else in our community based on their needs. From Leviticus 19.18, we get the famous command to love your neighbor as yourself, which is still at the heart of Western morality. The second answer to the question, what is love, we get again from Hebrew scripture, but also and even more so from Plato. This is the idea that love is the yearning for perfection, for the absolute, for the highest good. For the Old Testament, uh, clearly the highest good is God. And as Leviticus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. For Plato, the highest good is the essence of beauty. Love's ultimate desire, Socrates report, uh, reports in the Symposium, which is one of the two great works on love written by Plato, is to be in constant union with the very essence of beauty or goodness. To be united with the very essence of beauty means not to be united with this or that beautiful person or thing or landscape, but to be united with beauty itself, with what is beautiful and with what is common to all beautiful things and enables us to identify them as beautiful. And this is a reality that is absolute and unchanging and eternal, which is very important to what I will say later. On this conception, love is a great ethical and spiritual ideal, and it involves a great ethical and spiritual journey in search of the eternal and the absolute. And so, we might note in passing, it easily seeks to go beyond life itself, for if love shoots for the heavens beyond the world of individuation and seeks a completion beyond a world of space and time, it can easily morph into a death drive. Eros, the life drive, morphs into the death drive, which is exactly what we see in 19th century Liebestod, love death, the celebration of death through love, which in a way is the culmination of Platonism. Okay, that's the second broad conception of love. I'm having to run through all these very, very quickly. The third, which again we find articulated by Plato, is that love is a search for our, our unique other half. Words that are obviously cliches today. Here, the reason why we love someone is not because they are beautiful or good, as in the second conception, but rather because we in some sense find completion with them a sense that crucially involves the experience of returning to an original state in which together we were whole. We find this idea of return to wholeness in much Jewish and Christian mysticism. We find it also in, in one of the great myths of Plato about two halves finding their original whole together. And we find it in a way when Freud describes the experience of the lover's union and the melting of boundaries between them as a regression to a primitive stage of development when the infant was united with, with its mother. <coughs> this is, in a sense, the same sort of metaphor. She, like the original creatures described by Plato, is the origin of our being, and love aims to restore that original condition, that lost unity of an origin, in which we were not yet a distinct individual, 
and in which the pain and powerlessness of separation had not yet been experienced. Love, says Freud, strives to make the ego and the loved object one, to abolish all spatial barriers between them. Then we have a fourth conception. The point of running through these is not to just do a pedantic philosophical lecture, but to show how rich our conceptions of love have been and how, as it were, uniform we now are in our view of love. The fourth and very different idea of love is as dedication to the well-being of a very specific person whom we experience as a second self. This view is usually associated with Aristotle and was profoundly developed by him in two books of his Ethics. And he calls this philia, which is generally translated as friendship. And he sees such friendship love as genuine only between two people who possess similar virtues and character traits. So it's fundamentally an ethical bond. And, it's, and, the, and the recognition, which we all I think see when we love someone, we have this sense of recognition. The recognition here is an ethical one, first and foremost. And our friend, says Aristotle, becomes a mirror for ourselves and enables us to love and know ourselves and more generally to flourish. Now, Aristotelian friendship is mutual goodwill, um, unlike, for example, certain forms of romantic love, and is clearly seen by both parties as such. Like Arist all Aristotle's writing, the approach is very practical. So the friends have to take time to get to know each other. They have to live their lives together. They have to undertake joint projects together. And they have to get to understand each character, e each other's character as well. This is not love, as it were, that's consummated at first sight. On the contrary, Aristotle would think that was absolutely absurd. It wouldn't be love for him. And since such friendship is essentially an ethical bond, as I said. It is, and this is also a very important and interesting point, it is durable only to the extent that these good qualities of character are stable and similar. In other words, Aristotle, unlike Shakespeare's famous line about love not being love when it, love is only love when it, when it, when it uh, alteration, love is not love which changes when it alteration finds, etc. Aristotle allows that love can decline, that we can, that we can fall out of love. Indeed, he says at one point that we should fall out of love if the other person's virtue is no longer what it was, or if our virtues are no longer equal. One reason why he thinks that parents and children cannot genuinely and fully love each other. This sounds strange to our ears, but we need to keep them open to these ideas. The fifth idea of love is that it is nothing more than our sexual drive seeking satisfaction and procreation. In other words, love is just the name that we give to the way in which we idealize those whom we sexually desire. And this too has a very long history. We find it already in the Greek philosopher Epicurus, from whom we you know, get the word Epicurean. We see it repeatedly in Western history from the Roman poet Lucretius, who was a contemporary of Julius Caesar, uh, to right up to Schopenhauer in the 19th century, for whom sexual desire in its very nature makes us unhappy because it leads to frustration if unsatisfied and to boredom if satisfied. 
And we find this in seemingly very different thinkers, like uh, in Darwinian conceptions of love in our own time, that see love's idealizations as crucial to motivating us to find and keep the right mate and to invest the necessary effort in protecting and raising off offspring. In other, you know, without the idealization, we would never be motivated to stick enough around long enough to raise children and do the school run. This school of thought often emphasizes love's capacity, and I should say that in many ways Freud is, is within this school, though he is a hugely complex thinker and in many ways straddles some of them. But this school of thought often emphasizes love's capacity for violence and its neediness and unhappiness and its crude possessiveness, its desire effectively to swallow the other person up. For Lucretius, for example, love's modus operandi is power and manipulation, warfare and illusion. So far from being a harbinger of virtue as it is for Aristotle, it is a harbinger of danger and vice. And the art of love is to manage somehow to live this impulsive and heedless and particularly immoral instinct without being harmed by it. Lucretius is, as, as in many ways Freud, is as unidealistic about sexual love as it is possible to be, ridiculing our ceaseless hope of satisfaction, the jealousy and sadism to which that hope so often leads, our impossible craving to merge with one another, and the way in which grand passion often begets nothing more than grand stupidity. So we're obviously a long way in this fifth conception from the search for heavenly beauty and goodness. Nonetheless, those five conceptions, different though they are, are not incompatible. Or rather, they're not mutually exclusive. They are, they are conceptually incompatible. They're not mutually exclusive. You can see love. They can exist in the same soul, so to speak, which is one of the reasons why love is so vastly complex. You can see love as the search for ideal beauty and goodness, or as friendship, or as the yearning for otherworldly perfection, or as the desire for your other half, or as love for neighbor, or as, sexually de or as sexual desire. And I think it's, um, it's important to keep that in mind. Now, there has also been a sixth conception of love, which we owe to religious tradition, both Jewish and Christian, and this con concerns how God is said to love, said to love us, or the world. Such love, like God himself, is by definition unconditional, unchanging, absolute, and capable of affirming everything about the loved one. And it is from this sixth conception that our idea that love is unconditional and unchanging and disinterested stems you will have noted that none of the other ones um, hold to those points. Not one of those previous five conceptions believes, for example, love to be unconditional. <coughs> Much religious tradition told us that through God's grace, this divine manner of loving could be infused into human beings so that they could love like gods. So genuine love through this religious model of how God is said to love us, comes to be the model for human love. And this has been expressed down the ages by religious thinkers 
And I'll only give you one very brief quote most recently from Pope Benedict XVI in his first encyclical after he came into, after he was chosen to be Pope, where he said, quote, that God's way of loving becomes and should be the measure of human love. The point, though, is that religious tradition never held that humans could love in this divine sense, unconditionally and absolutely and eternally and so on, unaided by divine power. Because religion holds, or most religion holds in very different degrees, I don't have time to go into now, that grace is essential for us to be able to act as vehicles or as channels for divine love. Now the disaster, as I see it, that love has suffered for roughly the last two centuries is that as belief and religion declined, this conception of how God loves us that became the model for human love has remained over without the religious beliefs that alone gave it sense. Moreover, where religion emphasized that only the select few, as it were, a handful of saintly figures were the recipients in the end of divine grace, or at any rate that, di that divine grace was something that God alone would determine who is the recipient of, in a democratic age, it came to be believed that this sort of divine love, if you like, was within the reach of us all, unless we were sort of resisting it or unless pathology or reality, practical circumstances of life otherwise got in the way. But in principle, we were, as it were, all available for that sort of love, which is, which is bizarre because we would all accept that, you know, to become even a vaguely competent artist or gardener or professor or banker or singer is dearly purchased with long effort and is then only open to the few with sufficient talent, love has become seen as a democracy of salvation open to all. Now, it isn't that other substitutes for the old God haven't been tried since the West started losing its faith in the 17th and 18th centuries. It's just that all the other ideals have been found to be wanting. So reason, progress, capitalism, communism, and so on, all the other idols and isms that were, and in some cases still are, like nationalism and art, elevated to religions of salvation to fill this void left by the slow death of God, all these failed in practice to deliver the contentment expected of them. So uh, freedom, for example, which is still obviously a perennial candidate for, so to speak, a mass religion, will not do the trick if only because it cannot be even theoretically unlimited in extent or value. So though almost universally regarded today as a great good, it cannot lend, freedom cannot lend value to anything genuinely done in its name in the way that love can. So we don't think that every increase in freedom is good in the sense that we think, for example, every increase in love is. And similarly, I have reasons for believing that art too cannot take over this role. So to work towards my conclusion now, if love isn't what it is take, generally taken to be, so a sort of divinity in its own right and so on, a divinity that can somehow, as Martin Luther put it, make us humans into gods, what then is it? I think love is something different to these six conceptions that have been put forward in Western history. I think love is the rapture we feel for those who inspire in us the hope of an indestructible grounding for our life. 
those who give us a powerful sense of being at home in the world. We experience such people, but needn't just be people, or any object of love, it could be landscape, a work of art, and so on. We experience their mere presence as grounding, or as a promise of grounding, because it seems to be receptive to, to recognize, to echo, to provide a powerful birth to what we regard as most essential about us, which very much includes our origins and the strengths, vulnerabilities, and fate and sensibility with which they endow us, and which far from being purely private are deeply influenced by models we absorb from parents, society and peers. It is this self-interested and thoroughly conditional rapture that motivates the greatest self-giving of which we are capable, so that there is no necessary conflict between self-interest and self-giving. If we all have a need to love, as I believe we do, it is because we all need to feel at home in the world, to root our life in the here and now, to give our existence solidity and validity, and to deepen the sensation of, of being, and as Kafka once put it, to enable us to experience the reality of our life as indestructible, even if we know that it's temporary and will end in death. It is difficult, obviously, to define this promise of rootedness that I suggest inspires love. But then it is also notoriously difficult to define beauty or goodness, which the West's dominant tradition take to be the object and inspiration for love. What we can say, and obviously psychoanalysis has a great deal to say about this, is that at first our home is our father and our mother. Gradually its possibilities become larger and more <coughs> complex. They might include our work, our friends, our children, nature, and indeed God or places, ideas, and ideals, or, I think, common to common prejudice, money or status, and the people who offer us access to it. For these can also powerfully root, even if they are less noble and more obviously instrumental than other objects of love. By contrast, the dominant idea about love in the West, the idea most profoundly articulated by Plato, that love is fundamentally aroused by beauty, doesn't seem credible. For one thing, we manifestly love far fewer people and things than we consider beautiful. Someone might find many women beautiful, or indeed paintings or vases or landscape, but really love only one. For another thing, the true beauty that Plato had in mind is inseparable in his account of it from goodness, that is, ethical goodness, and it is obvious that many people love things that they themselves do not consider ethically good. The woman who falls in love with the murderer she acknowledges as bad is a staple of much literature. And indeed she might even find him bad, for, might even find him attractive for the charisma of his badness. The love of, that hostages famously develop for their captors, known as Stockholm Syndrome, and the ease with which love is aroused by power, indeed often by brutal power. The love of a child for his parents before he has any developed sense of whether they are good or bad and even after he might have been abused by them. All these suggest that love is not primarily a response to the good, as Plato suggested it was. Nor does love for the beautiful go together with love for the good. To see, as we do in many ways, the music-loving Auschwitz camp guard as a contradiction and to agonize over, you know, how is this possible, is just a legacy of Plato. 
it is entirely possible, for a love of beauty does not entail a commitment to morality. If love is, as I have proposed, inspired by the hope of ontological rootedness, the hope of feeling that our life is indestructibly anchored in a reality that we take, that, that we take to be absolute, then beauty will be a consequence of love, not its cause. It will be something that we see in, in the loved one, rather than something that inspires love in the first place. So I think in many ways we're, we are um, waging the wrong God Wars today. Dawkins, Hitchens and co are still fighting the last war. Many if not most of their arguments against the delusion of believing in an all-good, all-powerful saving creator God have been around for at least a century or two. Both sides of the argument have well-rehearsed positions to which little of any novelty has been added in recent years. Perhaps more importantly, those wars about the absolute and about God are regarded as legitimate by all parties to them. It is acceptable, even honourable, to fight about whether God exists and whether belief in, him, belief in him is good or bad for human flourishing. But I'm not sure whether it's yet acceptable to throw open to the strongest doubt whether parents love their children unconditionally or whether genuine love is selfless, enduring, or affirms the loved one in all their particularity. And I was quoting there from Martha Nussbaum, who's another philosopher of love. Have we yet asked how much damage love as a religion is doing to human flourishing and whether there isn't a more realistic and successful way of conceiving this greatest of emotions? And I believe we've barely begun to ask those questions. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Okay, okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I'd like to thank Simon in two ways. One is um, for uh, inviting me here, but secondly, for uh, uh, in order to be here, I had to look at his book, and I found his book tremendous. Um, I'm, there's a lot in the book, but I'm going to approach it necessarily from my own um position, my own immediate interest in terms of psychoanalysis, and that's, of course, why I've been invited. But I, I think I'd like to start by saying that just now I was rather reminded when um, Simon talks about our attitude to love as that you know, we, we shouldn't interrogate it. And I was very much reminded of a remark uh, that Richard Volheim quotes of Freud's um, because, of course, Wolheim was, uh, amongst many things, a, a, a great philosopher of art and, and aesthetics, and, uh, but also deeply interested in psychoanalysis. Um, and the quote from Freud goes something like this. Um, I'm paraphrasing because I haven't got it exactly to hand. But it is, it's endless. it would only be with the greatest difficulty that I could be persuaded that... Uh, uh, one's appreciation and understanding and that one's appreciation of art is necessarily diminished by the pursuit of understanding it. So I think one could actually just put the word love in them but it'd be the same issue. That, namely, that, that, that there's something very, very peculiar about saying that knowledge destroys rather than enriches. Um, 
So it's in that spirit that um, I go on. I agree basically um, with the central argument that Simon has put. Um, that is that love has replaced religion and, ha and uh, has all the qualities of religious love but without its justification uh, and without its, its home, if you like, in a religious felt and showering, in the religious view. That is that we've uh, continued to have uh, a rather peculiar understanding of love, divorced from its uh, ancient philosophical and religious roots, uh, but we don't see them. Um, I think that... Um, well, one of the things that Freud does, um, the way that Freud approaches sort of human... Uh, the issues that are central to human life is he tends to rather issue what he would call grand metaphysical questions and instead of perhaps if we take the idea of love I think the Freudian attitude would be um, not to ask quite what is love um, but instead to say from what we can learn by observing and understanding people around us what is it that we take them to, uh, to understand by the word love. In a, in a certain sense, his approach is uh, more empirical uh, than metaphysical, which is not to say that at other places he's also a metaphysician. But he certainly uh, likes to put a pin in our own narcissism. It is our own wish to exalt and extol the greatness and not see its more primitive and basic uh, uh, roots. Um, he saw himself uh, alongside, really, uh, uh, Darwin and Copernicus, uh, Copernicus first, and then Darwin, a sort of denting and putting a pin in man's inflated belief as his importance in the world. Um, so, if Freud asks, what is the purposes of life? he would replace it with the more modest and empirical question and practical one, namely from our observations of men, what do they seem to seek? What do they demand from life? And how do they set about achieving it? Men seek happiness, or at the very least, a diminution of unhappiness. But then later, of course, he adds fundamentally, but they cannot be happy, or simply happy, and live in the world that they have created. Because there's something about the world that we have created that necessarily creates uh, our own unhappiness. Now Freud wrote to the philosopher, the existential philosopher, Binswanger. Now Binswanger complained to Freud that he spent too much thinking about the, 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 um, the less um, grand aspects of humanity uh, and uh, looked at the more, the, the more basic, if you like, the more fundamental and the less appealing to our narcissism. Um, and uh, he said he should look more at the, the greatness of man. So Freud writes to Binswanger, you've failed to convince me. I've always confined myself to the ground floor and the basement edifice. He's talking about the mind as a kind of building. You maintain that by changing one's point of view, one can see an upper story in which dwell such distinguished guests as religion, art, etc. You are not the only one to say this. Most cultured specimens of homo natura, man he means, 
think the same thing. In this you are the conservative and I the revolutionary. In other words, Freud left it to many others to talk about man's grand grandness, but felt that he'd have to speak rather loudly for the darker side of our nature. Um, one of the things that, that, that I started to think about was the way uh, if we take the, the binding, the, the love that binds people together in groups, uh, in uh, societies, in nations, and religions. Um, men are bound together in groups through the affectionate tie, the loving tie, to each other and to their leader. But in order to be so tied, there is a suppression of their natural aggression. For Freud thought there was a natural hatred that we all have of the other people by virtue of the sense of being other and possibly in our way, as well as a natural tendency to love. So if we live in groups, and the groups that survive, we have to suppress the natural rivalrous hatred we have towards the other person. And Freud writes, it is always possible to bind a number of people in love, as long as there are others left over to receive the manifestations of aggressiveness, who of course is the outsider, who may be different in only minor ways, but this will suffice. Freud writes, when once the Apostle Paul had posited universal love between men as the foundation of the Christian community, extreme intolerance on that part of Christendom towards those who remained outside it became the inevitable consequence, and by that intolerance he meant murderous hatred. Now, certainly the way that we think about love and the way that psychoanalysts think about love is inevitably saturated with uh, the intellectual and cultural world within which we function and psychoanalysis can't lie outside that world it is part of it and the way that psychoanalysts think about these great questions will obviously be to some extent determined by the way they think about human beings for example one can think of the distinction between the noble savage so this would be the idea of man basically loving, fundamentally loving, but corrupted by experience, as opposed to original sin, which would be that the infant, if you like, is born with the will to destroy already beating in its breasts. Uh, this is a, a theological dispute, but it's also a psychoanalytic dispute, and it's one in which I'm thoroughly partisan. I'm on the original sin side, although not religious. Because uh, I consider the noble savage version of humanity to be uh, an idealization. There's a certain ca uh, Freud's work is characterized by tensions. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, people often quote bits of Freud to support one argument and another bit of Freud to support the other argument. But these tensions do not result, in my view, from slackness of thinking. The result from Freud's capacity to leave, live within polarities of thought and tensions without resolving them, but to sustain the tension, interrogate them, in a, and pursue them without looking for a final resolution. And certainly in early Freud, one can find a Dionysian uh, view of love. This would be Eros, which in pursuit of its object tears everything asunder. Uh, the Eros, which if it erupts into our ordinary world, would be an enormous threat that so has to be repressed. And Freud almost celebrates this uh, Dionysian urge in all of us, which of course we have to repress in order to, to live as human beings in community. However, later, 
and perhaps by the time of the structural model, Freud seems to give a bit more emphasis to what I would call the Apollonian view of love. That's the assertion of logos and order, where love uh, becomes more the process that binds people together and sustains them in the world, as opposed to what then becomes the death drive, which I'll come back to. But one of its manifestations is to tear things asunder, to reduce things all the time to their lowest form. Um, now there are two within Freud um, there are if you like there's two axes around which uh, we live uh, our love lives Um, and those two axes would be the axis of narcissism um, and the axis of the Oedipal situation now I haven't got time really to go into great detail so what I'm now going to say will necessarily be rather sketched out but for Freud postulated that we have a, 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 a and he changed his views on narcissism many times but just to give one version of it he took of course the word from the myth and it's interesting that for Freud human development is structured around these two great myths that's the myth of Narcissus and the myth of Oedipus uh, And Narcissus, for Freud, spells out the fundamental human tendency for self-love. He thought that there was what he called primary narcissism. This would be an early stage of life in which self and other are completely mixed up and harmonious, a state which I think is a fantasy. Uh, For for Freud, I suspect the jury is rather out, although uh, having come up with his later theories, he doesn't go much back to primary narcissism. But if we just leave out that kind of rather complicated theoretical debate and just take the basic issue, and that is the, 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 the pursuit of oneself as one's love object. Now this doesn't, if you take the myth of Narcissus, this doesn't mean literally thinking of yourself as loving yourself, because when Narcissus looks in the water, he sees an object which he takes not to be himself, with which he falls in love. So we could say from a subjective point of view, he loves another. But from the objective point of view, he loves himself. And in the same way, we sometimes see people seek the same love object over and over again, someone who represents an aspect of themselves. And so we can say that although they believe they're in pursuit of a love object, they're actually seeking to love themselves. Uh, Often an ideal self that has been... Uh, and its idealness is its, was also it gives it its sort of narcissistic stamp uh, is projected into the other and so in loving the other one's actually loving oneself and to some extent that's, that's never completely escapable we live with it to some extent but hopefully it's also overridden by the capacity to find something new in the object now Freud does actually ask a question in his a paper on narcissism which I wouldn't recommend to you because it's very very difficult some of Freud's writing reads like a wonderful literary essay and some of it is very very difficult particularly when he's changing his, his concepts the narcissism paper is one of those but in the, in the narcissism paper actually I think it's there it might be in Schreiber actually but he asks the question if this so called narcissistic world is so wonderful why do we ever leave it and as is typical of Freud when he doesn't have a, a model in mind to answer his question he turns to literature because he didn't have a theoretical model to answer that question 
But what he does is he turns to literature and he turns to the poet Heine. And of course Freud was a great lover of literature, particularly uh, Goethe and Shakespeare and Heine. And he thought that they all discovered what he discovered before him, but what he did was provided a theoretical structure for their great insights. So Heine, in his poem on the creation of, of, of man and the world, uh, the poet is imagined as asking God, why did you create the world? And God replies, I created in order to become well. I am created in order to be healthy. In other words, this shows Heine's um, um, apperception that, it, that you have to relate to the world in, or, in order not to become terribly ill. The drive to relate to the world is part of life and the drive towards the self and the self only is in fact death. Um, so if we move on from there to the eatable situation now of course it's originally formulated by Freud this remains very central to psychoanalysis but um, it's changed a lot because of course originally formulated by Freud it's uh, very much viewed from the male point of view um, but if we can take the essence of it um, one can think of the way in which the child and I believe this is particularly true in, a, in our western culture Eagleton once said that um, psychoanalysis applies to uh, is of course historical it's not ahistorical it's within history it cannot be judging from outside history because itself is a creation of history however the epoch to which it is relevant may be so long, Eagleton says, as we can sort of bracket out that thought. That is, that humanity as we know it, at least since ancient times up to current times, continues to have these dilemmas as represented, for example, in the Oedipus Rex. Now, for Freud, what, what he is saying is that the child has a profound attachment to the mother and to the father as the primary objects in life, and that these exist happily alongside each other until there becomes a great crisis. Now, contemporary analysts think that there's a lot that goes on before this great crisis in terms of the relation to the, to the primary object, the mother. But at this great crisis, if we just take the boy's point of view for the moment, is that he has his love for his mother and his love for his father, for Freud believed that we are all bisexual. And that is that homosexual love and heterosexual love are part of our nature and that pathology, for example, derives from the repression of our sexual impulses, so homosexual or heterosexual. So, but if we just take the heterosexual version, then it would be the boy uh, loves his mother and then sees the father as a rival. And once he sees his father as a dangerous rival, he has to suppress his, his ordinary passionate wish for his mother in order to continue to live and survive in the family. So he oppresses his wish for his mother and he takes his father as an ideal. Um, and it's a rather catch-22 ideal because the father says, thou shalt be like me, so to speak, internally, but thou shalt not be like me. I often think, think of things like, you know, and we'll cut off their tails with the carving knife, you know, as embodying these kind of primitive terrors of childhood. Um, now, just to take it a little further, I mean, I'd like to talk about Hamlet, but there isn't time because Freud actually links the Oedipus situation to, Hamlet, to the reason for Hamlet's delay. 
But I thought what might be of more interest to you is a be- some beautiful papers written by Freud on the psychology of love. And if I just take one aspect of it, um, he talks about, and here he's talking about, well, actually one thing that Freud says quite early on, he says that the ancient idealized the impulse and degraded the object, whereas the moderns idealize the object and degrade the impulse, which is quite in line with some of the things that you've been saying, but that's a bit of an aside. But if we take the... Um, uh, these papers on the psychology of love one of the one of the part of it is that Freud talks about what he calls a peculiar kind of object choice chosen by men and he gives the example for instance of the man who must have a woman who's absolutely chaste absolutely ideal so to speak with no no other sexual stain on her and then there's the man who has to have the woman who is the fallen woman the woman who is uh, uh, of ill virtue, if you like, the prostitute. Uh, and what? Um, and then there's the man who has to have the woman who in, is involved with someone else. He can never have a woman who is free. He has to have a woman who is with someone else. I mean, then Freud's brilliance is to say that all these are the same woman. They're all mother. Because mother has to be pure. Mother has to be pure above, absolutely virtuous, none of that filthy sex with, with father. Mother is a woman who's already been promised to someone else. And mother is also the prostitute, the first prostitute, the first whore in the man's mind, for having betrayed the child with the father. <laughs> and so, the child, from this point of view, develops a great difficulty, and I think this is still true, that boys, I think, find it, and men find it very difficult to accept women's sexual nature. I do not think it's unproblematic. Many men, no matter how mature and grown up and so on, find it very difficult to accept just how much a woman wants him sexually. They're all right with their own sexual impulses, but not so much with the woman's. And the uh, reason uh, for this is that I think that the man tries to maintain in his mind a perfect image of woman, unblemished by these carnal desires. And in the other side of his mind is, is the sexual woman. And you see it particularly beautifully in, in, detective, in some detective stories, where you'll often see the woman of the day who's got her picnic and is bright and, and, and pretty, but not sexual, very friendly. And then there's the woman of the night with her painted fingernails and her high-heeled <laughs> shoes and her black stockings. And these two images are kept completely separate. And I think that remains uh, a pathology. Um, I wanted just to quote and then something from Freud because it particularly came up uh, in what Simon said. And then I'll end by talking just a little bit. I won't be able to do it in much detail about Klein. And I aim to end just after half past, if that's yeah, right. Do you want to have like half an hour for yeah. Time? Okay. Um, so I'll just bring you the quote because it's so uh, relevant. Example of Freud, you know, putting his little pin in. Um, if we look at the attitude of affectionate parents towards their children, we have to recognise that it is a revival and reproduction of their own narcissism which we have long abandoned. Freud is saying here that we all go through this narcissistic phase, but we never really quite give it up. 
So we project, into, we project this narcissism into our leaders, so they become the absolute ideal, which was originally ourselves. But here he's talking about children. It's a revival and reproduction of their own narcissism, which they have long since abandoned. The trustworthy pointer constituted by overvaluation. Parents overvalue their children, which, as we have already recognized, is the, uh, uh, the mark of narcissism, and this dominates their attitude. Thus they are under the compulsion to ascribe every perfection to the child, which sober observation would find no occasion to do, and to conceal and forget all his shortcomings. Incidentally, incidentally Freud writes, the denial of sexuality um, is uh, the denial of sexuality in children is part of this problem. The boy shall become a great man and a hero in his father's place, and the girl shall marry a prince as a tardy compensation for the mother. At the most touchy point in this narcissistic system, the immortality of the ego, that is, recognition of our mortality, the immortality of the ego, which is so hard pressed by reality. Security is achieved by taking refuge in the child. Then Freud quotes a, a, a cartoon that was a popular at the time in which a woman is pushing her pram out into the street and a policeman is holding up the carriages. And the cartoon said, His Majesty the Baby. And Freud writes, as we all once fancied ourselves to be. So he concludes that bit by saying, parental love, so moving and at bottom so childish, is nothing but the parent's narcissism born again, which transformed into object love, unmistakably reveals its former nature. And I always take this out and reread it and show it to friends when they're getting agonized about schools and universities for their children and to ask the question, how much of this is for the child and how much of this is your narcissism? Your need to have, you know, the perfect child. And I have to read it again myself. I'm not without the problem. Okay, so I'll conclude. I haven't said quite as much about Klein as I'd like to say, um, so I'll be brief. Um, Klein, for Klein, the child is born, as I said. We're all born, if you like, with the will to destroy, uh, already beating in our breasts. She writes, um, Feelings of love and gratitude arise directly and spontaneously in the baby in response to the love and care of his mother. The power of love, which is a manifestation of the forces which tend to preserve life, is there in the baby as well as the destructive impulses and finds its fundamental expression in the baby's attachment. First of all, to, the, to, the, to parts of the mother like the breast, then to the mother and then to other people. My psychoanalytic work has convinced me that when a baby's mind, that in the baby's mind, the conflicts between love and hate, are, when in the baby's mind, the conflicts between love and hate arise, and the fears of losing the loved one become active, a very important step is made in development. For this brings feelings of guilt and distress, and they enter as a new element into the emotion of love, and become an inherent part of it. Now, what Klein really talks about is two, not stages of development, but two ways of being in the world, which do um, have their origin in the earliest life. And one she called the paranoid schizoid. And this is, if you like, the world of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If I am violent, then I fear the violence that's going to be returned towards me. 
It's a paranoid world and it's a divided world. It's like the world of fairy tales that I love only the good, good, good objects and all my hatred is towards the things that are bad and they deserve it because they're bad. And for Klein, this wasn't only a split in the world into idealized and hated objects. It was one that's necessary for development, that you couldn't get through development without this need for idealization. But also the self is split, because the self that hates the bad objects and the self that loves the good objects is a divided self. Then Klein describes a phase of development which he called the depressive position. And it doesn't mean depressive illness. It means an integration. And in this depressive position, there's an integration so that one sees, if you like, the object that frustrates you and the object that brings you love and understanding is the one and the same object. So the world becomes more integrated and therefore the self is more integrated. Although we always go back and forth throughout life. We just have to get into a car and have someone cut us up to fall momentarily back into the paranoid position. But hopefully we don't stay there for long. Now in the depressive world, in the depressive world, there's the integration, but it brings pain. And this is why Klein is very much within the tradition of Freud, because man's position in life is a tragic one, that we are destined to suffer pain. And attempts to find a pain-free life are bound to end up in profound psychological disturbance. Now for Klein, the pain that comes is a pain of the recognition of the damage done. That when I damaged and tore apart and killed in my mind that bad object, I now realize that it was also my good object. And so what is born is both the feeling of separation, because it's a more integrated world, you can see the people in your life as more separate from you, but also the feeling of guilt. So the entry is an entry into the moral world. And the feeling of guilt is very profound. And when people get back to this feeling of guilt, often when they're unwell, it can be the cause of terrible pain. But nevertheless, it's also the core that it brings relief to the personality. Because with guilt, and this was one of Klein's major contributions, comes the impulse to repair, which she saw as its source very much an expression of love. So she saw all our creative work in the world and that includes the work of living a life, to uh, work, to create relationships and so on, it is not pure in itself, it's born out of a wish to make better that which one has destroyed. It's a reparative impulse, and therefore uh, it's not a defense. So that's in very, very brief something about uh, Klein's view of, uh, of development, and that she sees a lot of our difficulties arise from the kinds of pain and torments that arise from what she called the depressive position and our wish to move away from it to a more you know, split you know, and schizoid world. I think what I'd like to close with is um, to say that from a psychoanalytical point of view, from what we know of human nature, we might ask a question. And it's much broader than Simon's uh, immediate focus because if we agree that we are all propelled by impulses to destroy out of greed uh, and the wish for immediate satisfaction a kind of narcissism and so on and, and by envy which is very central to Klein 
And if we agree there also have impulses within us, drives within us to repair, to form, to create things in the world, if we take that as a given, and I, I find it a bit undeniable, then we can ask what kind of social structures might act to support the more destructive side of our nature, and what kind of social structures might act, and what kind of social structures might act to support the reparative side of our nature and put a break on our destructiveness, and what kind of social cultural context might actually put a break on our capacity for repair, for building things in the world, and support our greed and our violence. And I really believe that we do not have to look very far. Because for me, a very important embodiment of that kind of attachment to community is born by the welfare state. The welfare state offers the opportunity for reparation and offers the opportunity for a kind of community. And it is that which is being destroyed before our very eyes. And it seems to me that capitalism is a system, is fundamentally a system of self-destruction, which supports, the, gives no voice to the loving sides of our nature, turns them into mere, pure narcissistic self-interest, and is destroying us in the process. If I, if I could just, uh, it's just too much to respond to, you know, very brief. I mean, we'll just take up all the time. I think it would be much yeah. more interesting to hear from okay. everyone else. Because so we've, uh, we've been on, we've been ravaging on a long time. <laughs> next case, uh, questions, So I can't quite hear. A little bit louder. Sorry, the view that love is a, is a desire for ontological grounding in the world, that you know, love is our, you know, what gives us this sense of grounding. So I was, I was wondering if you could perhaps clarify a little bit. Do you think that gives love some sort of ontological status beyond just our desire of what we feel as a, something of love, or is it just kind of a construction, or what's kind of your view of its ontological status? I guess? Well, I'm thinking of it really principally as an experience. I'm not giving it as such some independent ontological status beyond our experience. But I'm interested in the nature of that experience and what it is that we look for specifically in love. And I'm saying there are, of course, other forms of relating and attaching. So I don't want to say, you know, that all forms of relationship to anything uh, that, that are not destructive should be considered love. So I'm looking, what interests me are very specific features of how we go about looking for rootedness in the world. Just to give you two examples, the idea that rootedness in the here and now involves some relationship to an origin, which I don't necessarily see as having to be infantile. Um, there, there are many ways of expressing that. It could be a religious way in which you relate to God who's the source of your being. It could be a form of nationalism. 
it could indeed also be a form of relating to an, an original parent. Um, I think myths of origins are extremely important in love, and I also think simultaneously that love is a future-oriented movement, so it seeks some future com completion, which we have to be careful of not to put into an ideal, into the straitjacket of of an ideal, where we end up in some of the problems that David has has mentioned. But it's um, you know there, there are a whole set of but anyway, those those are those are two examples of what I think we're looking for. And it is an experiential thing. I don't think there's you know it has some sort of independent ontological status. I'm just in um, I, I I'm impressed by the idea of rootedness and the, and the emphasis on the experience of love. But what I feel I'm, I'm missing is a sort of more naturalistic description of love. Um, something that you could call a thick ethical concept, something that we are, we're all aware of what it means, but we find it very difficult to pin down. And it, it has very practical ramifications in the way we live and in the way we relate. And, and we can talk about people loving each other, and we can say that that person no longer loves that other person. Uh, we, we know what that means. And it, 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 uh, sex is a very important part of that. Uh, sex isn't just a sort of a, an optional extra which can be tacked on. Mm -hmm. uh, sex is integral to the thing, and mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't work without the sex. This is mm -hmm. kind of um, there's an economy there which which mm -hmm. includes sex as an important element, um, and and it's contractual. It's very pract practical. It's conditional, and and this is something we can all have a sense of, but find it very difficult to pin down. And mm -hmm. I I th I, th I would like to to sort of emphasize the experience rather than um, setting up something that we can only think of aspiring to. No, but I've just, just said in answer to the previous question that it's all, it's all about experience. Um, and in fact, I've also just said that uh, there's, a, there's a danger if it becomes purely, as, you know, purely at least I, I, ideal. So I think I'm, I think I'm agreeing with you. Um, I certainly wouldn't see it as inconsistent with sexuality. On, on the contrary, I think, you know, the the depth of a sexual relationship belongs to this feeling I'm talking about. Uh, but equally, I wouldn't want to see, you know, any sexual intimacy as contributing to that. And I think in some sense, it would be desirable if we could free up sex a little bit from love and not force it to be always, as it were, the, the servant of a loving relationship. I think sexuality needs to be given a, li a little more independence you know, than it, than, than, than it has in our, in our society. <laughs> Sorry, I have a question. Uh, I've been reading something called Thomas More, and I don't know if you've come across it. Thomas? More, M-O-R-E, not utopian Thomas No, 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 no. Um, he comes from a Catholic perspective, but fuses that with um, ideas about Greek myths. Um, and he has this take that maybe our ideas about love could be a little bit more pluralistic original Greek myths, you've got um, different female Greek goddesses who stand for different aspects of love. So you've got Aphrodite, who's the sexual aspect, Hera, who's that kind of very wifey aspect, and then also other <laughs> goddesses and nymphs that represent other hmm. aspects of different types of love. And I wonder whether what we need is a more pluralistic idea that you might dip in and out of those different types, rather than a unified, this is what it is, you're having the right experience if you're inside some kind of parameters. Sure.
um, you see, I, I think we shouldn't be struggling to find what the essence of love is. Uh, and I think this is what the speaker at the front is saying, that, 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 it, that we're not going to bound this thing in a nutshell and say this is what love is. But what, what we can do is we can do the historical work so we can actually look at the conceptualizations of love, which is what Simon has done. Um, and then we can look at the place that, that the idea of love has in our current culture. But I think um, one of my difficulties with what you're suggesting is this, that I, I think that one of the pathologies of our age is the commoditization of life. That means the penetration of the commodity form into all forms of existence. So I just gave an example where the welfare state is becoming a shop. And university college had a big banner up. We, we, we are, this is a university, not a shop. Now that we can easily agree with. But when we start to think about the commoditization of human relationships, as if one can choose and I'll have this bit of love there and that bit of love in the other place and I'll do this and I'll do that. To me, that's a commodification of, the, of, of human life. Uh, as if we could have the control. No, no, can I just finish? Because I need to just finish the argument. Otherwise, it'll go wrong in my mind. Um, we, the extent of the argument is that experience needs to be suffered. And I use the word suffer here in the way that Bion, a psychoanalyst, uses it. It's a very old English word. And it means to bear. We have to bear pain. Beyond ready, we cannot bear pain. We will not bear pleasure. And that is that it's a difference between thinking you can construct your experience endlessly uh, and go shopping, or that one is the person that one is with the limited choices and suffer the person that you are. And I think love is something that has to be suffered in that sense and cannot be constructed. I think you've mistaken the fact that I was saying by being pluralistic for commoditization. That's not what I mean. I completely agree with you. I think the best example of that is dating, that you can sit on the internet and pick who you want and have the qualities you want as if you're doing your online shopping. You're making a more conceptual point, aren't you? Yeah. 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 Can kind of be represented in a literary kind of way to admit and explore yeah. those ideas a little bit more than okay. just yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 I just, can I just add very, very, very briefly to this that um, I think, you know, I think you mentioned, or perhaps someone else mentioned, that, you know, should we be sort of trying to force love into some straitjacket of a conceptual definition? And apart from the fact that, you know, if philosophers didn't do that, we'd all be on the dole. So that, you know, that, that is our sort of thing, so to speak. Um, I think it's still possible to try to define something without forcing it into a straitjacket. So to me, it's extremely important to, on the contrary, what you're doing is you're seeking an umbrella under which a lot of different things can come. So to me, it's very important to decide whether we want to go down the route of, for example, the Platonic route of, you know, love is inspired by beauty, which takes us down one particular route. And no one's saying we shouldn't try and define beauty in any way. I mean, clearly we mean something by beauty, 
however complex and varied? Or is love something else, and I'm saying it's this search for rootedness thing, which takes us down a completely different avenue? So it's the avenue we go down that concerns me, not sort of trying to get some, you know, single sentence that's going to just define it once and for all. And I think it makes a huge difference which one we go down when, we, when it trickles down to our everyday relationships and what we expect of each other. I think um, one slight difficulty I have with, with, with the being in the world, the rootedness, that first of all, I agree with it. Um, I think the original rootedness must derive from the original relationships uh, in life which provide a foundation. But I, it's a bit too binswangerish for me and not Freudian enough. It's too lacking in the dirt. It, this kind of being in the world sounds right. But you see, when you, I think at times you might, I don't think it'd be right to reduce all love to carnal sexual love. I don't think Freud does that. What he does do, though, is say, that these aspects of our nature inform all our relationships in subtle and hidden ways. For instance, the gentleman's club is obviously repressed homosexuality. <laughs> it's not the... Although they all feel at home there, you know. No, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would like to say, just in response to this, that I'm not attempting to create one vast monastery in which we can all, you know, to which we can all repair. I mean, I think that... Um, and perhaps I didn't make it clear enough that this desire to be in the world, to, to be at home in the world is one of the, is one of the most fundamental human desires and, it, and, it, and it's, these strong desires can get violent, they can get, they can get profoundly possessive, they can want to force their will so I'm in no way suggesting that this is some genteel search for you know, what we feel, where we feel sort of comfortable and can put up our feet I mean I just can't you know, summarise the history of western love in 20 minutes and go on to give my own thing and give every aspect to it but you've, you've read my book so you know it's not all sanitised <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I suppose I put it something like this, that we all, as I said, have destructive wishes within us. And in a certain sense, we're free to express them if we know they're not going to be taken to, if they're not going to be acted upon. So, for example, we might feel very hateful towards a group of people, and that's natural, and it's natural to feel it. But where um, there's cultural support to act on that hatred or to support that hatred, that's a different matter. Now, I, when I mentioned the welfare state, what I meant was, you see, that this is a, 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 provides a model, I think, of a community in which each person gives out of their taxation to the common wheel and the state takes on the job of providing for, for, for others. Therefore, this is a reparative 
institution. Um, the opposite of that, of course, is one for one, which is a narcissistic institution. And what I've said is we're all narcissistic, but the welfare state embodies something which is non-narcissistic. Um, Titmus wrote a beautiful book called The Gift Relationship. And what he meant was that you, he was talking about blood donation. So in the reparative version, you give your blood, it goes into a blood bank, and you have no knowledge or control over where it goes. As opposed to giving your blood and getting money for it, as opposed to giving your blood and insisting that it mustn't go to any black people or Jews or gypsies, or putting in a blood bank only for your own and family's use, which is the ultimate of narcissism. So I think the welfare state, through providing, if you like, a pool of resources, supports. And the interesting thing is that about 10, 15 years ago, if you'd asked any consultant, be they right-wing or left-wing, they would have absolutely supported the welfare state as an absolute given of life. Now we're living in a world in which the market form is completely penetrated, services are being cut everywhere, and the only logic is the logic of the market. So I think that logic actually destroys and eventually we will lose a lot of the welfare state. But we see it even now. People are saying, why should people study literature? You're not going to get a job with that. Or ancient Greece, or if someone's interested in, in Sanskrit or whatever. So the whole of life is becoming commoditized and I'm saying that commoditization has a consequence which destroys our natural wish to be able to provide for others or for have a state that will provide for others. So it supports, if you like, a kind of altruism, which is a form of love. But altruism isn't pure. I'm not saying we're purely altruistic. That It's balanced by more hateful uh, impulses. Similarly, hatred of asylum seekers or immigrants supports these more destructive parts you know, of, 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 our, uh, of our characters. So the language is becoming saturated in our common in, in our world with which re reveal i think a, a rather dangerous and violent destructive force which is having a real consequence you know for all of us Your point, yeah. So, so to no, no, no. I mean, I just did on. He was very well expressed. Uh, the to take the second question first. Um, I'm absolutely not trying to stand outside history. Um, in fact, I take spend a lot of time in the book saying how this particular conception, which 
for the sake of trying to present things clearly, I present it as a separate conception, actually explains or accommodates a great many features of all the other conceptions. So I think, well, in fact, as I already said in response to some, something, someone, um, the, the, if you take the myth of Aristophanes, so the idea of returning to some original whole, I say that the feeling of ontological rudeness, as I've said just now, involves, in my view, always some sense of return. So the, the, that second, I think it was the second one in my list of five, you know, could get accommodated right there, or the regression point of, of Freud. Uh, similarly, I think that a great deal of mi Christian mysticism, um, Jewish mysticism, uh, is, um, can be accounted for the idea of returning to a spiritual origin in God, which we also read about in the Phaedrus, uh, the idea that the purpose of life is to move towards a fuller and richer relationship to this ultimate being, this being in relation to whom our life makes sense, in relation to whom our life is, so to speak, rooted, and in relation to whom we certainly are at home. So, I mean, I can't go on and on and on giving examples, but I mean, I basically <coughs> don't see this as a separate thing standing outside history, but as... Um, as, as, as one that can relate to all the others. The only thing is that I do think it's crucial. You, you still need an organizing concept, right? And, and as I said, the, the, the organize, well, I think you do for anything, if you wanted to sort of try and define, you know, what beauty is or goodness is or what love is or what, or what freedom is. So these things are historically unstable. Yeah, well, I think probably the content that would be given to it would be historically unstable. So what it would be to be at home in the 20th century would probably be different, well, it will certainly be different to what it is in the 14th century. But I do think that as an organizing concept, it's one that works. And Nietzsche himself, who was, as you know, as you rightly say, one of the most local thinkers there's ever been, nonetheless also advances, you know, certain organizing concepts like master and slave morality. He doesn't say, I can only talk about master and slave morality as a 19th century writer, and it probably has no relevance to any other period of human history. So, you know, you will always have in philosophy and in any discipline certain organizing concepts which then in their application are local and in, and in the way they get expressed are local to the time in which we live. So, so I'm definitely, you know, I definitely wouldn't wish to stand, uh, claim to stand outside history or anything. There's also a kind of heuristic value in, in taking this position in that you can see how far you can push it. Uh, and if you say, well, that, that, that's one of many and so on, but if you say, okay, I'm going to go with this one and I'm just going to see how far I can push it, that's also great theoretical value, I think. I know you had a first question, I've, I've forgotten it. Uh, but anyway, do you, would, would, you, would you like it answered? The, the, so you say, what is love? And then the answer is, is the feeling we get in response to the feeling of ontological rudeness? And then the question is, does this feeling have a more definite context? Yes. No, well, I mean, definitely. I mean, one thing I go into, for example, in this book, and I won't now because I know there are other questions, is, is are the two things you mentioned, I think, which are gratitude or, oh, yes, joy. I, I talk quite a lot about gratitude and awe and go into the feeling of the sublime and so on, that, you know, Kantian, the Kantian idea, the Berkeley idea of the sublime that I think is involved in this. And again, I think, you know, that this, 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 this clearly, um, you know, religious accounts of love would, would, would fit into this just as much as, um, you know, falling in love with another human being or indeed standing in awe before a mountain. So, so yes, I do, I do think that these kinds of feelings do come into it, definitely. Lots of hands up. <laughs> yeah, lots of hands and only five minutes left, so if you could keep it brief, 
can, can I make a suggestion? And that is, rather than us responding to each one, which we won't be able to right. do, if, if, if a number of people ask questions, and then we could maybe yeah, just respond to what we can. Busy, Otherwise, it's just ping pong, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We can try to take two or three, but it's a Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. So let's take this question, the question there, and then, and then you, okay. So, do you want to start? Um, yeah, no, I do see what you mean. I think the answer to the question is no. <laughs> no, in other words, um, as far as I'm concerned, but I haven't really thought about exactly what you've said, but it, 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 it doesn't really, you, you don't, so to speak, need a ladder of experience. I think it's something that you recognize and you see and my interest is in finding out what it is that we recognize. I mean, we, I think we all say when we meet someone who we love, there's some recognition going on, right? So to me, the question is, what is this recognition about? I guess that's what I'm interested in. And that recognition can come at the first meeting or it can never come. I don't think experience nece is necessary to it. Uh, maybe I've misunderstood your question, but we have to be okay, brief. So let's take Okay, 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 all right. Okay. Otherwise, he won't. Should we take the other questions? <laughs> it's one of the most powerful ways we experience love in reality and in um, film and literature, um, where we have a situation of redemption. Uh, the tears of homesickness, for example, in, with Walter Benjamin, the things that bring tears, uh, I find personally, are usually redemptive situations. And, I mean, in the everyday situation, uh, it is the question of um, making up in a love uh, relationship and making up, you know, forgiving is divine. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think um, love inevitably has a redemptive feel if by redemption you mean that when you finally, when it gives you a good so great that it does seem in a sense, if not if, even if the suffering you've had in your life isn't necessary to that, as in many accounts of love, it does have this feeling of redeeming, of making good, of in some sense justifying. So I think, it, but, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it doesn't have to. I don't know, this is too big a subject. I can't really deal with it in a, in a few seconds. There's too much time. Can we not take five minutes more? We started five minutes late. Five I mean, more, I don't know, you know. And there was, sorry, your question was what? It's love real. Oh, is love real? Well, the feeling, yes, the, the, the need is real, the feeling is real. Um, you, could, you could be mistaken about the promise, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, you could be mistaken about the promise and the availability of the other, but, you, but the feeling itself cannot, in a sense, be mistaken. It's real, it's there. We, we, we operate um, about, we basically talk about love, but we don't really operate with the concept being fully aware about what it is that we're actually talking about. Right? We're talking about dependency, rootedness, we're talking about being outside history, being inside history, and we don't, nobody actually has a clear idea about what love is. 
So how do you actually know that what you actually feel <laughs> is the real thing? Can I have a go? Oh, it's the real thing, okay. Yeah. <laughs> We have to suffer and be in the world, basically. And there is no... You see, to me, I think... Uh, it reminds me of Wittgenstein saying uh, something like, um, if I see a man before me, I do not deduce from my perceptions that it is a man. And I think you're in danger of doing the same thing to love. You know, okay, I've got all these objects. Now, where can I go to find out if it's love or not? And I think... The, that isn't the way to go about it. That's like being the, the, the philosopher trying to fall in love. Whereas, I think, the ex I, I, I agree with Simon, I think the experience is real, but I also think we need to make some phenomenological distinctions. We need to d distinguish between feeling one loves and feeling one is loved. These are, these are different kinds of experience. Of course, you know, we, we all know we can feel love for someone who doesn't love us. And we can feel loved by someone who we don't love. So I think the important phenomenological distinctions to make, I, I, I think if we transposed your question into a more psychological question, the answer would have to be love is real and unreal. That is that the loved object is necessarily um, uh, filled with fantasies. That, they, that derive from our more um, from deep parts of our character and derive also from our infantile selves and we do not know them we just feel them we suffer them we experience them so love is necessarily contained within it something that's illusory and the illusory thing is inescapable but it is not only illusory it's a mix up of the illusory and if you like the real so uh, and that's probably part of the motor that gets us all sort of Going. And I agree with the other speaker about, about the importance to emphasize, because it can sound as if love is, is a pure emotion. And I think what the speaker is reminding us is that feelings of love are permeated by uh, other kinds of phenomenology, and they very much include pain and regret and longing. And that's very much written uh, into Klein's account, that the, the feeling of longing derives from, is part of what love is. And also that longing that can never be satisfied. And loss. You know, the difference between, as I would put it, something going missing and the feeling of missing something is also very much part of the phenomenology of love. Yeah, do you think we should take one last question? Okay. Yeah. David Bell, yeah. <laughs> relation or the loving attachment or the loving link or connection doesn't have to, have to absolutely necessarily be linked with sexuality itself that one could so to speak fulfill some kind of basic sexual desire without loving and one can love uh, 
uh, without necessarily uh, feeling sexual desire, that they're not always completely yoked together. I think that's yeah, what you no, said. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, and, 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 and the questioner, I think, is um, perhaps thinking of this, that are we, might we get in danger of a kind of um, purity doctrine, you know, that love is pure and that sexuality is some sort of taters, which is not what Simon means at all. But I, I think your point is, is an important point. That um, uh, I mean, I suppose my position would be, and it sounds a bit sort of um, cop out, but that everything is in everything, and that you know that that there is no. I would say there is no love that doesn't have a sexual component. But that sexual component, what Freud did is he widened the concept of sexuality. Now, some might say he widened it so far it's lost its meaning. I don't think so. But I think that if you include in sexuality Freud's description of the infantile passions, and I don't see that one could have a love that doesn't have even the love of beauty, the love of landscape, the love of science, you know, I, I think contains some of these very early and underwritten and supported by some quite early and powerful desires that are part of our character, but sublimated. So the scientist, if you like, wants to explore the world. For me, the first world is the mother's body that he wants to know. And the scientist expresses that and is supported by that in the passion and curiosity of his work. I put it that way because it can easily... Sometimes psychoanalysts are misrepresented saying, oh, all he's doing is looking at his mother's body. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that all we do derives from the earliest relationship. So when the woman said, someone over there said, you know, what happens, um, you, can you learn from love and so on? Well, we've all loved. The first love is the infantile love. That's already in us. Now, whether we've had to wall it off or whether we can find ways of expressing it, but um, there isn't, you know, first, Freud said that every... Um, uh, love object is not only is is a representation of something from before. So things are linked to other things. But also, as a psychoanalyst, I would have to say a cautionary note. And the cautionary note is that each person finds their own way through this tangle. And that means that for some people, for example, the the the, the adaptive way of living is to have no relationship, sexual relationships with other people. And I don't think that should necessarily be pathologized. That is that person's way of managing life. Other people have other ways. So we each have to find our own way. And I think we have to be very careful about labeling one pathological and the other not due to some cultural moray. Yeah, I think we could clearly go on forever, but um, unfortunately we have to end at this point. Um, so please join me in thanking our two